at least the first 39 verses. So we're going to stand. I'll read aloud as you follow along. Daniel 11, verses 1 through 39. Verse 1 really ends what we had studied last week in chapter 10. Verse 21 of chapter 10 said, I will tell you what is noted in the scripture truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, (coughs) pardon me, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than all of them. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with his great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he, is, when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of the heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of, the, one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her, of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But he shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots one shall arise in that place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry forth their gods captive. Uh, to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold and he shall continue more years than the king of the north also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south and he shall return to his own land however his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through and then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife The king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. And the king of the north, uh, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. And he shall stand in that glorious land with destruction in his power." He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and and upright ones with him. And thus he shall do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. But they shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. And, but within a few days, he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. In his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. 
With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall, he shall act deceitfully. For he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest place of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them and plunder, spoil and riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south will be stirred up to battle with a very great mighty army. He shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. But these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at that same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will, be, will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortresses. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant shall shall he corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those who by understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire for women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. He shall acknowledge acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Thank you. Please be seated. I've decided to change the title of the message this morning to this. What in the world? For two reasons. When I look at this passage and think, what am I supposed to preach? I think, what in the world am I supposed to preach about something like this? But then the second thing is this. What in the world is he describing as to what would be taking place in such chaos and such uh, destruction and intrigue or deceitfulness? What would bring upon this kind of description of, uh, of history? Folks, what we, are, what we just read about is we read about the history of civilization, the history of kingdoms written before those kingdoms ever came about. I'm going to be able to go back into history because it's been accomplished now, but I'm going to be able to go back and show you the names of the people that he's describing before these people ever came upon the scene. And 
excuse me, and notice the detail with which he is able to describe them because there is a God. And God is in absolute control. And God knows the end from the beginning. God knows what kingdoms will come. And God rises and He allows the kingdoms to fall according to His goodwill and His good purposes. Let me start by reminding you that Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are all describing the same vision. And Daniel, when he first received this vision, received a vision of great wars and it troubled him so severely that for 21 days he could do nothing but pray and fast and ask God to deliver the people of Israel. Daniel was given a vision not only of the future wars and the future conflict that Israel would face, but he also became very much aware of the reality of the spiritual conflict that lay behind all of human civilization and human history. Let me start this morning by saying, maybe a controversial, certainly shouldn't be a controversial statement for those of us who know the Lord and, and love and follow Him, but the reality is, is that the, behind the scenes of human history is spiritual war. Behind the scenes of all human history is spiritual war. That war began before the history of civilization and mankind. It began in Isaiah chapter 14 when the Bible says that Lucifer, the son of the morning, raised himself up against God and he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will become like the Most High God. I will receive worship and adoration. It was Lucifer, Satan, who rose up in rebellion against God and decided that he wanted to be worshipped as God and he established himself to be a God. That warfare that began before the history of humankind is exemplified in the very first pages, in the first hours, the first days of human history. In human history, we have the creation of mankind by the direct act of God. God who directly, graciously created us. We're not the product of random chance. We are the product of God's gracious design and His creation. And when God created man and then He allows that man to go into a deep sleep, He takes a rib from His side and He creates a woman. God created man and woman. God created human history. And when Eve fell into sin, fell into the temptation that she fell into, she fell under the, under the first act of human history that exemplified spiritual warfare. Right? It was Satan who came as a serpent in the form of a serpent whispering in her ears the lies that said, hey, if you would just eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know God forbade you to eat it. God said, do not eat from it. But if you would just eat it, look, it's good for food. It's desirable. It'll make you wise and you can be like God. Sure, sure enough, she fell under the influence of the lies of Satan. She ate. And when she ate, and when she gave to her husband, and he too ate, mankind fell into sin. And when man was judged under sin, God speaks judgment, condemnation, not only to the man and to the woman, but He speaks judgment to the serpent. And to the serpent, Lucifer, He says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And he shall, he shall, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall wound your head. When he was speaking there, God was anticipating the whole course of human history which would overshadow, it would cover, it would be visible human history, but underlying everything else was a spiritual warfare where eventually God would triumph over the forces of darkness. God is promising it. God was promising to Satan, to Adam and to Eve. He said, yes, mankind has fallen into sin and yet I will bring a Redeemer. 
And that Redeemer who comes from the seed of this woman, that Redeemer, the Savior, He is going to bring the death blow to Satan and He will defeat him once and for all. Yes, you'll be able to harm Him. You'll be able to bruise His heel. You'll crucify Him. And yet in all of your attempts to crucify and destroy Him, you are doing nothing but accomplishing my purposes. Folks, the spiritual warfare that is behind the scenes of human history is a warfare that we may not be able to see. And yet, there was a servant of the Lord in 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha was a man of, of God who saw Syrians who had come and encamped around his city. They were wanting to kill him. <clears throat> Can you imagine a whole army coming to your city because they wanted to kill you? His servant was terrified. His servant looked out and he said, What are we going to do? And Elisha said, Oh, don't worry. Because the armies that are on our side are much greater than the armies that, are, that you see. And then he prayed and he said, God, open his eyes. And sure enough, the eyes of that servant were open. And Elisha was able to see multitudes of armies and chariots that were chariots of fire that surrounded the Syrian army and were able to annihilate and destroy them. Because folks, behind human history, there is a spiritual battle, a spiritual war that is raging. It is a battle that began uh, back with Adam and Eve and it continues even to this very day. Now you think about this conflict just for a moment. Could you imagine how frustrating it would be to wrestle or to battle against God? I, uh, I grew up as a basketball player. I was never a wrestler. I had no idea what wrestlers did. But I was big. I figured, hey, I'm big. I'm tall. I'm lanky. I try to work out every once in a while. I'm strong. I'll be able to wrestle. I wrestled a friend of mine. I was 185 pounds. He was 120 pounds. It was frustrating to wrestle against this pro wrestler because he took every move that I made and he used it against me. And so every time I moved, he would do something against me. Uh, Tim Bonebright is a, is a guy who's been serving in our church. He's now a youth pastor in another church. But Tim is training in Greco-Roman wrestling here at the Olympic Training Center. And one of the youth questioned me one time. They said, hey, we'd like to see you wrestle Tim. I said, yeah, I bet that you really would like to see that. <laughs> it's amazing how they love to see blood and death and gore. The guy would tear me apart. I, every move that I would do, he would use against me, folks. Can you imagine the frustration of Lucifer that every move he makes, God turns it around and uses it for his purposes? Glory to God that everything Satan does, God turns it around and uses it to accomplish his purpose. It'd be horribly frustrating if you're on the side of darkness. It is greatly encouraging if you're on the side of God and on the side of light. Because though the enemy wages war against us and would do everything he can to defeat us, nothing he does can prevail. Let me give you some examples. God chose that His Messiah, His Savior, His Redeemer would come through a man named Abraham and through Abraham's children, eventually the children of Israel. When God chose the people of Israel to become the, the line, the lineage of the coming Messiah, God chose Israel for destruction and oppression because the devil would do everything he could to keep that Messiah from coming. And yet, no matter what enemies and armies have been able to do under the influence and under the lies and under the pressure of satanic forces, they have not been able to accomplish anything. Satan might try to influence the, the kingdoms of Greece. 
God turns it around and He says, I'm going to allow the Greeks to take over. I'm going to allow them to bring oppression for the people of Israel. But I'm also going to allow them to bring in the language through which all of the world will be able to read and understand the Gospel of Christ, the New Testament, the message of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. Yes, you use the Greeks, Satan, under your influence and for your purposes, but really what you're accomplishing is my purpose. Because in the fullness of time, when time was just right, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God continually accomplishes His He accomplishes His purposes. And essentially, that's what Daniel 11 is all about. You come to Daniel 11, you read what we just read, and some of us will scratch our head, including me. I scratch my head and I think, what in the world is going on? And yet, what I discover there is that Daniel is giving it a glimpse into future history and the wars that everyone is going to bring against Israel to try to defeat Israel and keep the Messiah from coming. He sees all of that warfare and he also sees the spiritual battle that is uh, underlying it and and he's seeing that God will be victorious and that God will bring his Redeemer. Folks, Satan is still battling against the purposes of God. He cannot keep Jesus Christ from being the Redeemer any longer. That price has been paid. It is finished were the words of Jesus Christ on the cross and that battle is over. Now, what Satan battles to do is he battles to think that somehow he can keep God's purposes of a coming Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished redemption, but now he thinks that somehow he can keep him from bringing peace and the kingdom on earth and prosperity and bringing people to follow him. He is still fighting against the purposes of God and yet this passage not only gives us hope because it showed us the battles in the past that all contributed to God's victory, it is also helping us to anticipate the future battles that Satan will bring and the future counterfeit and lies that he will bring. And it helps remind us that, folks, God is in control, God is victorious, and the King is coming. It's good to know that our King, the Lord Jesus, is coming. You said, Jeff, how did you get all of that out of Daniel 11? Well, you start off with Daniel 11, verse 1. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Here is an angel, a messenger from God, who comes and he speaks and he says, Look, there is warfare that's going on. The warfare that's going on is really a battle between truth and error. I'm, and truth and lies. And so the devil will come with his lies, trying to influence his actions. God brings the truth. When Darius came to be the king, I recognized that my purpose for the people of Israel was that I will restore them to the land of Israel. God will do everything He can, or a devil, the devil will do all that he can to destroy the people of Israel. I am going to influence them with the help of Michael so that my people, the chosen people of Israel, are delivered. They're able to go back to the promised land, which is what God had intended. But he says, this is in the end. The battle isn't, just, isn't over, it's just begun. He says in verse 2, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. And sure enough, three more did. Three more kings were able to arise after Cyrus and the first Darius that was there. There was a Cambyses who became a king who <clears throat> he served for a little while. And then there was another king by the name of Pseudosmedes. And I'm not even sure that I have all the pronunciations of these things right. Please, Understand, I'm a, humble, I'm a humble man and I don't even know all, how to pronounce all these names. But I do know God's working through all of them and working His perfect purposes. So please be patient with me if you know the pronunciations better than I do. But the second king was Pseudo-Smertus. You say, why Pseudo-Smertus? Well, <coughs> Cambyses was such a wicked guy that he tried to kill everyone in his family. 
who killed his brother, Smyrtus, who was really a competitor for the throne. And so there came along a priest in Persia, an influential priest who said, look, I'm going to rise up in the place of Smyrtus and I will reign in his place. Thus you have Smyrto or pseudo-Smyrtus. It's a false Smyrtus, but he becomes the king. Then after him, there's a third king that comes and he is uh, Darius. Darius is another king who came and you might remember, has anyone ever heard of a marathon or the Battle of Marathon? The Battle of Marathon is when the Persians began invading Greece and they decided they wanted to take more land. And so Darius, under one of the hugest armies that has ever been placed together, some estimate that there were a million men in his army. They marched all the way across Syria, all the way across Turkey or Asia Minor, modern Turkey. They invaded Greece and they come to the plains of Marathon. They're battling the Athenians and somehow... God's gracious work or whatever you want to attribute it to, the Athenians were able to defend themselves and defeat Darius. From the plains of Marathon, you had a man, a messenger who ran the 21 miles, I believe that it was. It may have been the 26 that we, uh, under, uh, that we enjoy as far as our marathons. But he, he ran that 26 miles and he was able to proclaim to the people, Behold, we conquer. Listen, that was Darius. But after those three kings, it says, I will send one more king. The fourth will be far richer than all of them. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. We know him from history as a man named Xerxes, or as we know him in the Bible, Ahasuerus. Uh, Ahasuerus was the king during Esther's reign. You remember Esther? Esther had come in during a time, and you remember, God raised up Esther essentially to become the queen so that she could protect the people of Israel. Are you remembering this? There was a plan throughout the Persian Empire that we want to get rid of. We want to kill all of the Jews. And instead, God thwarted that plan. God thwarted the influence of Satan through that Persian Empire. God thwarted it through Esther, raising her up for such a time as this so that the people of Israel would be protected under this fourth king. This rich, uh, this rich strong guy that's being described here. And yet, for all of his good things, he decided that he wanted to avenge his father's, Darius's, uh, loss over in Greece. So he went in and attempted to invade Greece again. He was annihilated. He was devastated. There's a man by the name of Alexander the Great who became the great and mighty king of verse 3. A mighty king shall arise who shall rule with a great dominion and do according to his will. He did according to his will. He had the greatest dominion that ever was because in three short years Alexander the Great was able to establish the Greek Empire. When he was 32 years old, folks, think about that. Before he was even 33 years old, when he was 32 years old, he had accomplished all of the victory he could ever hope for, and he counted his life to be worthless. You know what he did? The same thing a lot of people who accomplish a lot when they're young do. They accomplish great fame through sports. They accomplish great uh, wealth through some sort of sales. They accomplish great uh, fame wherever it might be. They've accomplished what they want. I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. You know something? You accomplish that and you find out it's not satisfying. So what do you do? Drink the rest of your life away, which is exactly what Alexander the Great did. Nothing satisfied and he ends up drinking himself to death in Babylon. 32-year-old Alexander the Great. He wasn't great that long, was he? That's exactly what he just said in this verse. God, before Alexander the Great was even a twinkle in his mother's eye, Alexander the Great was described as being, he's going to have strength, 
uh, he's going to have a great dominion. And yet when he's arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of the earth, not among his own posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled. What's that mean? It means that he didn't have any children or ancestors to rule for him. His kingdom was divided into to four generals. One of those generals was Ptolemy, who took over Egypt. He becomes the king of the south. The king of the south would be the Greek Ptolemy, or uh, that's the family line that rules the south for the next 280 or so years. And then you'd have the Syrian kingdom. There in Syria, which would include Babylon, modern-day Iraq, uh, go on down into Palestine. The Greek king or the Greek general who ruled over that was a man by the name of Seleucus. Seleucus uh, started a whole other family line. He becomes the king of the north. Then one, uh, the third extension of that kingdom is into Turkey or Asia Minor under Lysimachus. And then there is Macedonia or Greek proper and that's under Cassander. So you say, alright Jeff, you just confused me with all these names. Don't be confused by names. These are just real, live names that fulfill in every detail what God prophesied was going to happen. Because God's in control. You say, Jeff, that's just the first couple of verses. I have no desire to go through and to explain every single verse and give you the name of every single king. I will tell you when it describes a, a king that is going to try to bring peace. And by the way, you say, alright, what's this whole idea of being stuck in the middle or between a rock and a hard place? Look, the king of the north, kings of Syria, battled for the 280 years against the kings of the south, Egypt. Will you tell me what's in between Syria and Egypt? Israel. Guess where they had every battle? Israel. I mean, it's bad news to be caught in between two warring sides. Just ask my little brother Chris. He'd get in my, my way and my other brother's way. He'd try to bring peace and there's no peace bringing. You get yourself in the middle, you get yourself nothing but trouble. That's what Israel faced for 280 years as the kings of the north invaded the south. And the kings of the south went up into the north and then it went back and forth. Right through Israel. Why? Because Satan was doing everything he could to destroy and annihilate the people of Israel so a Messiah couldn't come. And yet God says, all of this is going to happen. All of this is according to my plan and I'm still going to bring my Messiah and I'm still going to bring a death blow to Satan's head. He prophesies and he gives us the details of it. He tells us about Alexander the Great. He tells us about one of those kings of the south sending his daughter up to the king of the north trying to bring peace. Sounds like a good way to to end a rivalry. Uh, let your daughter marry into their family. <laughs> Hello? I mean, have we not ever figured out that marriage doesn't usually bring peace between families? It sometimes brings greater conflict between families? Where's she going to spend Christmas? <laughs> Alright, so here's the battle that's going on. They've got the north and the south. They send Bernice. Here's the daughter, Bernice. That's her real life name. She's sent up to the north. They said, okay, this is going to accomplish peace. As you read it here, it says that she doesn't accomplish peace. As a matter of fact, she's killed. Why? Sounds like a soap opera, but it's true. The king of the north already had a wife. And in order to marry Bernice, he had to divorce his wife, Laodice. And so Laodice decides, hey, this is enough. I don't want, want to be put away. And so Bernice has a child. Laodice is jealous. She poisons mother and child. Gets rid of them. That's a good way to bring peace between the North and the South. Then she's so upset about being divorced that she kills the father, the king. 
And as a result, the, the, the baby that she had, a young child that had been, bo- been born before the whole Bernice incident, that child becomes the next king of the north. Well, that becomes a real problem. Because that king of the north, who's related to the murderess, Laodice, who just killed, the king of the south is a brother of Bernice. And so the brother is going to do everything he can to defend his sister's honor and her name and remembrance. And so he invades and annihilates people. And as he does it, he tromps right through Israel. And then they tromp right back down through Israel. And we could go through every verse and you could have names. If you have a study Bible, MacArthur Study Bible, NIV Study Bible, if you have any kind of uh, commentary, you're able to go through and see how that every part of history of this time, we're talking about the time between the Testaments, the time uh, before Christ came and the time after Scripture, Old Testament Scripture had been fulfilled, all of that time was described in detail in what we just read in Daniel 11. It would get to the point where it describes uh, Antiochus the Great, a, a great conqueror who would come and be able to overcome the South and then he would bring peace to them. Uh, another one was a southern king who came to the north and defeated the north and he was loved in Egypt. You know why? Because when he went to the north and defeated them, he got all of their gods and idols and their silver and their gold and he brought it back to the people in Egypt. And so people in Egypt called him the Savior because he brought all these things back to them. All of that comes down to one very specific individual that's described here. A man that we've already been introduced to in the book of Daniel. A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus would follow the lines of all of the other Antiochuses. He was actually Antiochus III who was part of that family. He took the surname Epiphanes which means manifestation of God. In other words, I'm God's gift to humankind. Or actually what he was saying is, I am God. I'm God made flesh. I'm revealing God to you, so worship me. Here was a man who had great power and strength. As it says in this chapter, it says that he was a, uh, he was a vile man. He was contemptible. He was one of the most wicked men that you've ever heard of. He was so wicked that he came down into the south and he came with such a great army. My understanding, again, I could be confusing some of these kings, but my understanding is that they had 75,000 men come down at one point. 75,000 men who went down, defeated Egypt, were able to bring them under their control, and then on their way back, simply because they hated Jews, they entered into Jerusalem and killed tens of thousands of Jews. Then, a couple of years later, they went down to defeat Egypt again and get some more wealth from them. This time, when they went down into Egypt, Antiochus Epiphanes was met by the first uh, armada from Rome. It talks here about ships from Cyprus. Those are really from Rome. There were Roman ships that had come and the Romans came and they said, look, no more fighting here. If you take over Egypt, basically you're fighting against Rome. And if you fight against Rome, there's going to be serious hurt. Remember how Rome is described in this book? Legs of steel and of iron. I mean, they're powerful and they're able to bring great destruction. And so he was scared to death. And so he turned around and he went back home. And on his way home, he took his rage out on the Jews. He enters into Jerusalem and he slaughtered 80,000 Jews this time. He carries 40,000 of them off into slavery. Not only does he slaughter Jews, but as he comes in, he puts an end to all of their worship. He says, no longer are you people going to worship. He says, I'm going to... He killed the priests. He sets up his own priest who would follow in his ways and become kind of his puppet. 
Antiochus Epiphanes, according as it is written here, he enters in in December, December the 16th. He enters into the temple. He sets up a, tem- a, a god, a, a god Zeus. And he says everyone has to worship Zeus here. This is the abomination of desolation, an idol in the house of God that they're forced to worship. Furthermore, he takes a swine, a pig, and he, and he slaughters that pig there on the altar of God. He tears everything down. He tears tor- uh, the Torahs apart and burns them. He, he just brings devastation upon the Jews. Three years later, I believe in my understanding is correct. Is that right? Three years later, there is a rebellion of the Jews that's being described here. The people who knew their God were strong and carried out great exploits. Jewish people who were faithful to God and faithful to the covenant decided, hey, we're going to rebel against this and we're going to raise up real worship. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. Has anyone ever heard of that? The Maccabean Revolt? That's historical fact. It was prophesied before it ever was even a thought. It was prophesied in Daniel 11. And in the Maccabean Revolt, you'd have Judas Maccabeus leading his men in to cleanse the temple, restore the temple, restore worship, and every year Jewish people commemorate and remember Judas Maccabeus' cleansing of the temple in December, starting about the 16th or so of December. They remember it with a feast of lights that we call Hanukkah. Hanukkah. You don't find it anywhere else in the Bible except for Daniel 11 where it's alluded to. Because Daniel 11 is telling us that no matter what the devil might do to accomplish his purpose and to bring judgment upon and devastation to the people of Israel, God is going to accomplish his purpose and he will bring a Messiah. And that Messiah will give his life so there might be redemption not only for the Jews but for Gentiles and for all people. There might be redemption through his name. Folks, all of this mess that we read about... All of this in every detail was something that God not only knew about, but God planned. And it was going exactly as He designed and intended it to be. Can you imagine the frustration of Satan who says, Oh, I've got this great idea. I'm going to raise up Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm going to influence him through all these lies and tell him that he can become God. And he's going to do all these things. And after he does all these things, you find out, Ah, that was God's plan after all. Everything he does, God turns around and foils it. God uses it to accomplish his purpose. And folks, that can be the same in your life and in mine. Every lie, every influence, everything that the devil would cast against us, the Bible says that if we would, if we would submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he will flee from us. What's that mean? That means that we embrace the truth of what he says, what God says. We reject the lies that may be brought against us by our accuser, the accuser of the brethren, the devil. We reject those lies and we embrace and accept the truth of who God is. And folks, we embrace this truth. Jesus is the Savior. And only He can save you from sin. You say, Jeff, is there spiritual warfare going on in this room today? Yes, there may be. Because, my friend, if you have put your confidence and trust in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save you from sin then you are under the oppression of satanic lie and deception. You believe something that is not the gospel. You say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't do that bad. What is the truth about that? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You say, oh, well, you know, I never murdered. Well, what's the truth about that? The book of James says, He who keeps the whole law and offends in one point, he's guilty of all. So, 
If you disobeyed mom and dad, then you've also murdered. You're guilty of all. Before God, you are guilty. You say, well, I do a lot of good things. I give money to good groups. I attend church whenever I can. I pray as often as I can. All of these things are good. Oh, wait a second. What's the truth that the Bible speaks about that? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Are you following me? There is spiritual warfare that's going on in some of your hearts and in some of your minds right this moment. Ah, Jesus Christ. He can't really be God. What is the truth? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus says, I am He. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am He, you should die in your sins. Jesus goes all through the Scriptures demonstrating His attributes and His actions, the prerogatives. He receives worship. No one can receive worship but God, right? He receives worship. Folks, the battle might be in your mind the battle of, oh, Jesus can't be God. Wait, He is God. And unless you believe that He is God, you cannot have eternal life. The battle might be, well, wait, who is Jesus? After all, He just was a good teacher who lived a long time ago and He died a, a martyr's death. No. The truth is, is that He is God made flesh and He came and He died upon a cross and when He died upon that cross, He did not die for His own sins. He died for the sins of many. What's that mean? That means that He died taking the punishment for sins that I and you have committed. And folks, the Bible says that if you will trust Him, if you will come to Him and admit, Jesus, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner and I'm far from God and I need You to cleanse me and make me righteous. The Bible says the moment that I call upon the Lord, <coughs> God will take all of my sins and He will charge them to Christ's account, which He already paid on the cross. And He will take all of Christ's righteousness, all of His good things that He did, and He will put them to my account, and God will allow me to be righteous in His eyes, simply through Christ. What's the spiritual warfare that's going on for you? It's a battle for your soul, my friend. And the battle for your soul is this. What will you do with Jesus? Will you embrace the truth of who Christ is? Or will you continue to reject and push away because you've fallen for the lies and the deception of the wicked one. And that wicked one, the devil, is the one that has told us in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, it says that he, the God of this world, is blinding the eyes of those who don't believe. There is spiritual warfare that's going on right now. That spiritual warfare is in the hearts of those who haven't believed in Christ, and yet, that spiritual warfare may well be going in the hearts of Christians as well. The circumstances you're facing... You're overwhelmed with. The challenges that you're facing or whatever it might be, you're overwhelmed, you're hopeless, you're ready to give up. Look, He gives hope. He gives strength. He says, don't worry about all these things. Just like Job, under the oppression and influence of satanic attack, you remember what he said? Though He, God, slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Whatever it is that God's allowing to happen in my life, I'm going to trust in Him. Folks, the battle's won as soon as I believe and I trust in Him. I've just embraced, embraced the truth. And the, battle, and the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory is won. Say, so what, might, what might the battle be? The battle might be understanding that, folks, there's a day coming when Antiochus Epiphanes... As evil as he was, he's going to look like a Girl Scout. 
compared to another one that will be like Antiochus Epiphanes. But instead of rising up out of the Greek Empire, this one will rise up out of a Roman Empire. We'll talk about him next week. He will rise up out of a Roman Empire and he will bring similar kind of persecution and hatred and venom against the Jewish people. You say, Jeff, why do you believe that that would be future? Because Jesus did. Jesus says there is coming a day in which there will be an abomination of desolation. That was after Antiochus Epiphanes' abomination of desolation. He was saying what Antiochus did in abomination of desolation against God, that's just the beginning. There's coming another one and there's going to be a day in which a Roman king, a great king out of peace with Israel is going to enter into that temple and he's going to set himself up as God and he's going to demand to be worshipped. And any who will not worship him will be beheaded. You know of him as the Antichrist. You say, oh no. Jeff, what do we do? How do we prepare? The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Are we together? How do I get ready for this stuff? What if I don't have enough gold coins? What if I don't have enough silver bullion? What if I don't have enough food? Well, bad news. All that food that you store up, the rats could eat it anyway. None of that helps prepare you for whatever the future might hold. Which, by the way, if you were in Sunday school this morning, I don't believe that we as Christians will be facing that tribulation. So, let me just throw that in there. We'll talk more about that next week, okay? But you still say, well, what are we going to do? There still might be trials and tribulation. What do we do? What do we do? We know God. And the more that we know Him, the more we recognize that no matter what the foe may bring against us, no matter what empires rise up against us, no matter what circumstances are brought against us, God's purposes will be fulfilled. If Antiochus Epiphanes could not stop Jesus Christ from coming and redeeming us, then the Antichrist will never be able to stop Jesus Christ from sitting upon His throne and bringing peace bringing in His kingdom. God is victorious. What in the world? It's a pretty good title for this thing. What in the world? I read this and I'm like, what in the world do I say? I, what, in the world is, what in the world is this? Everything that has happened in this world that is chaotic and confusing, everything that will happen in this world that is chaotic and confusing, God is in control. God is a victor. There's a spiritual battle that's going on. But folks, those that are on our side are far more than those that are against us. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Stop being deceived by the wicked one. Stop falling for his lies. Stop becoming one of his prey. Resist him today. Resist him how? By embracing and receiving the truth that you have heard, even the truth about the gospel. Would you bow with me please in a word of prayer? No one is looking around. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're a Christian, I trust that you are in prayer. This morning, I believe that you have heard the truth of the gospel as plainly as I would know how to state it. But unless, unless the Lord opened their eyes, folks, the battle will not be won. God is the only one who opens eyes and softens hearts. And so Christians, I trust that you are in prayer even as warfare is being waged this moment. If you have never trusted Christ and you say, alright, look, I've trusted a lot of things. My goodness, my church, my heritage, trust my giving, my charity. Uh, I trust 
you know what? And Jeff, when you talk about that, I'm trusting the wrong thing. I'm trusting the thing that the devil wants me to trust. Today, I want to trust Christ and Him alone. Who He is and what He's done. I want to trust Him and Him alone to save me from sin. Pastor Jeff, this battle is going on for me. Pray for me because I want to embrace the truth of the gospel that you talked about this morning. Is there anyone who would raise your hand and say, Pastor, please pray for me. That's what God's doing in my heart. I see that. Thank you. You can put that down. Is there anyone else? Pastor, pray for me. I want to embrace that truth. I see that. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Is there anyone else? Anyone else? As you raise your hand, may I encourage you to do this right this moment. Say, God, I believe your truth. I believe the truth of who Jesus Christ is, that He is God made flesh. I believe the truth that He died on the cross for my sins. I believe the truth that I cannot save myself. I can't do anything to make myself acceptable to you. I believe the truth that if I call upon you, you will save me. And I ask you, Lord, right now to save me and cleanse me from my sin and make me a new creature. Embracing that truth, the victory is already won. Oh, Lord, our prayer and desire is that in every heart that is here, every soul that is examining itself today, I pray that we might find the victory that we find only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read a passage that is confusing and we get overwhelmed by it, but Lord, basically it just tells us God is in control, God's directing, and God will win. And Lord, I know that you will win today. Do not allow the seeds that have been planted today, the seeds of truth, of the gospel, don't allow them to be plucked away by the wicked one like birds would pluck away seeds in a field. Allow this seed to find rich soil, allow it to sink in deep, and allow it to bring forth the fruit that you desire of it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.